Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. What we're talking about this morning is essentially this. Words have power, right? Words have power. Um, So last weekend, um, I was in my backyard and I was trying to build a fire. We were going to make a fire pit in our backyard. We've got like one of those little solo stove fire pits, you know, and uh, so I was going to make a fire in there because we were going to have some people over. We were going to carve pumpkins. We were going to make s'mores and, and that whole thing. But if you remember the week before, it rained a lot. Right, And so everything in my backyard, all the firewood, all of the little twigs, all the sticks, everything was soaking wet. And Abby, my wife, she asked me uh, before everybody got there, said, do you think you should go buy some dry firewood? And I was like, no, um, I'm a man, you know, I can, I can build fire. And so I thought I can just get out there and I can build fire, you know. And uh, so I got out there and I worked and worked and worked trying to build fire with wet material. It's it's almost impossible. Well, I, I found out that it was uh, pretty much, yeah, it was impossible. And so I, I, like, I shredded up this whole magazine, I felt like, and had it underneath there and kept trying to light it. Nothing would light. Even my fire pit itself was wet. Um, and so it just, it, it wasn't working. Eventually, I was able to find enough dry pieces, stack it in there. It caught on fire. And when it did, I said, fire, you know, just like Tom Hanks and Castaway. It was a whole moment. Everybody cheered. They were all happy. You know, they all, yes, we have fire, right? Now, if I were to, in this room, in this place, right now, in this moment, scream the word fire, well, it's going to have a much different reaction, isn't it? You would, rightly so, get up and leave if I were to scream fire in this moment. Words have power. I'll illustrate it another way. So I am an Oklahoma Sooners fan. Um, You are, I would assume, Arkansas Razorback fans, although I do see the LSU stuff over here. That was a huge win last night. We were all LSU fans last night. But for the most part, I'm an OU fan. You're Razorback fans. And one thing that we have in common um, is our our football teams are terrible this year, right? (laughs) We, We do have that in common. But we also share this. As Sooners fans, Razorback fans, we share a hatred of Texas, don't we? We don't like them, Um, and I think that's good. It brings us together as family. We have a hatred of the Longhorns. And so what if I were to say, let's let's do this together. On the count of three, we're all going to shout, hook them, hook them horns, or Texas fight. Anybody want to do that? No, you shouldn't want to do that. And if you were to raise your hand, I was going to kick you out of here or something. Um, But we don't say that. Why? Because words have power. Words do. They have power. This morning out of Hosea chapter 14, we're going to see some powerful words. We're going to see the words of repentance is what these words are called, the words of repentance. Now, the words themselves aren't powerful, but they do lead us to a powerful place, and that place is restoration with a holy God. So if you have a Bible, open it with me to Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14. It's in the Old Testament. We're finishing our four-week series in the book of Hosea uh, this week. Next week, we will start a two-week series through the book of Micah, another Old Testament minor prophet book. And then after that, 
we're going to the book of John, and we're all just going to breathe a sigh of relief and say amen. We're in the New Testament, and there is Jesus, right? But today, we're in the book of Hosea. So growing up as a kid in church, um, and maybe you would identify with this, I didn't see repentance as a good thing, you know? Repentance was almost like um, cough medicine. You take it if you're sick, but it would be better just to not get sick, right? And so with repentance, it's kind of the same idea. We just try our best not to sin. And I think sometimes as church people, we we think of repentance and we think that it's just this one-time prayer that you pray uh, to ask Jesus to forgive your sins and to save you. And that's true. Or maybe we think of repentance as just, it's the prayer that you pray if you mess up big time. You know, like if you do something really bad, then you gotta pray a prayer of repentance. But I think if that's what we believe about repentance, well, we've missed what the Bible says about our ongoing fight with sin. See, even Christians, we have an ongoing struggle, an ongoing fight with sin. I know that to be true because even the great apostle Paul, who wrote a ton of the New Testament, said that he struggled with sin. Romans chapter seven, I want you to hear this. This is Paul saying, he said, for I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. See, even the great apostle Paul is saying that there's a struggle that he faces continually with an ongoing desire for sin. So there is a struggle in us. Even if you are a believer, someone who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you still are gonna struggle with sin. There's this war that's going on inside of you between the righteousness that Jesus has given you and your natural self, your flesh. They're at war with one another. And because that is true, we may need to rethink our whole idea of repentance. And we need to see repentance as a good and healthy posture and one that we should find ourselves in daily. All right? That's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, I want us to pray. And I want to pray for all of us. And as I do, why don't you just take a second and ask God in this moment to speak to you. Just very simply, God, would you speak to me? Let's pray together. God, we, um, we just want to come before you and ask that through your word that you would do what only you can do, and that is speak to our hearts. Speak to us. Help us to hear you. Help us to respond to you. Would you show us what truth is? Would you show us that, that we are in desperate need of a Savior for our sin problem and that we can look to you for that? We're listening, and we love you. We ask that you would speak. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, Hosea chapter 14. Let's look at verse one together. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible this morning. Hosea chapter 14, verse one. says this, Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands for the fatherless receives compassion in you. I want us to walk through this passage together and and look at what verse two calls the words of repentance. 
The words of repentance. That's what we're looking at. There's three points here or three phrases, three words of repentance that I want to show you. Number one, uh, the first words of repentance is to acknowledge sin. Acknowledge sin. Verse two says, says, say to him, okay, that's with your words, say to him, forgive all our iniquity. Now, what we see here in this moment is sin being confronted by God. Verse one, God says this, Israel, return to the Lord your God for you have stumbled in your iniquity. You've done it. You've stumbled in your iniquity, which iniquity is the word sin. Sin is a church word that we use that basically just means that we stray from the desires of a holy God, right? That he is holy, he is pure, he is good, and we miss the mark. We are not holy. We are not righteous. Now, I probably don't need to really explain that to you. If you just turn on the news or just kind of watch yourself for a day, you know that you are not holy as God is holy. We stray from the desires of God. And so that's a problem that every single person on planet Earth has this problem of sin. Because uh, the Bible says, Romans 3.23, it says that all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person does not measure up to the standard that God holds for us. And that's a problem because Romans 6.23 says that the payment or what we deserve for our sin is death. And that's not just talking of dying when you get old. That's talking of a spiritual death a death that separates you from a holy God. And, and what the Bible talks about is a real place called hell, right? And so the payment for your sin is that, it's death. And so that is a problem. Every single person on planet earth has that problem. Now, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, being God in the flesh, came to this earth on a rescue mission to save people who are caught in sin, right? that he willingly laid down his life as the sacrifice that was needed for our sin problem. When he goes to the cross and, and he lays down his life and his blood was shed, it appeased or it took on the wrath of God towards your sin. Whenever he's buried in the tomb for three days, comes bursting out of there alive, then he offers you and I the chance at redemption and the chance at new life. And so you and I, place our faith in him, we respond to him, we turn towards him, that's a picture of repentance, right? So through Jesus, you can have your sin problem fixed. Through Jesus, your sin, past, present, and future is forgiven, and you now stand right before God. That's what we talked about last week, the, the imputed righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is placed in your life in place of your sin, but that only happens whenever you surrender to him, okay? It's not just a given. You must surrender to him. You must come to a place of recognizing Jesus as the only means of salvation and trust him with your life. And if you do that, the Bible says he is faithful and he will save you. He will. And so when you do that, your sin, past, present, and future is forgiven and you now stand right before God. And so that is the invitation. If you have never trusted Jesus for salvation, if you've never trusted him as your savior, well, the good news of the Bible is that you can. 
Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, the Bible says, will be saved. And so you can do that right here, right now, this morning. Call on the name of Jesus. Say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you love me, and I'm asking you to save me. And the Bible says that he will, okay? And so that's the invitation if you've not trusted Jesus. Now, if you have trusted Jesus, well, even after you surrender to Jesus, you're still going to sin. <laughs> you're still going to struggle with sin. It's this ongoing thing in our life. Now, positionally before God, you are still right with God because of your salvation. But relationally, when you sin, it causes some relational issues. If you remember the context of the book of Hosea, its, it's major theme is a story of an unfaithful bride, of a wife who cheats on her husband. And it's a picture of, of God being the faithful groom and us being the unfaithful bride. And we cheat on God all the time with all kinds of other lovers, but he still loves us, right? And so he is the faithful groom. I said week one that we are all Gomer, right? We are all the unfaithful bride. Hosea 11 verse seven says that my people are just bent on turning from me. We're just bent on going the wrong, wrong way, right? And that's us. Like we continually sin against God. I'll prove it to you. How many of you had a perfect week? Anybody have a perfectly sinful or sinless week? No? What about a day? Anybody make it a whole day this week without sinning? How about just this morning trying to get to church? Did you, did you do that without wanting to kill your whole family, right? No, man, we are sinful people. And so we see it. Like he is perfectly holy and we continually stray from him. We're just bent on turning from him. And so you and I, even as Christ followers, we have an ongoing need to turn back to him because we stray. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about repentance and, and we had the illustration of what repentance looks like. And we had the Hershey's bar over here and we had the Reese's peanut butter cups over here. And we talked about how repentance is not necessarily turning away from this. It kind of happens by default, but repentance is whenever I turn towards the Reese's, which is far, far better, right? That's a picture of repentance. Repentance is turning to God. That's what it is. And so I want to talk just for a moment, like Christian who is in a battle with sin. Like you're in, this, you're in this war with some kind of sin and it's just kicking your tail. I want you to hear a few things from scripture. Yesterday's failures do not define you. Right? At the cross of Jesus, your bondage to sin was decisively broken. In that moment at the cross, Jesus does what Genesis 3.15 predicted he would do, and he straight crushed the head of Satan, okay? He crushed the head of Satan, defeating death and sin forever. And so at the cross of Jesus, your bondage to sin was decisively broken. Romans 6.6 6 says this, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body that is ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself 
for me. So at the cross, your bondage, your slavery to sin was broken. And then the moment you trust in him for salvation, you are baptized into his death. And the Bible says you are now raised to walk in new life through him. That's the reason we have the picture of baptism. After you follow Jesus for salvation, we follow him in what's called believer's baptism. Baptism doesn't save us, but it's a picture of what's happening in your heart, that you've been buried in death with him, and now you're raised to walk in new life. Romans 6, 4 talks about it. And so you're no longer a slave to sin, you are free. And this is decisively and irrevocably true for every born-again believer. Romans 6, 11. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't obey its desires. And so if you find yourself this morning in a war, in a battle with ongoing sin, I want to say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The bondage of sin has been broken at the cross for you. Acknowledge your missteps and then ask for forgiveness. That's what Hosea 14.2, the words of repentance tells us to do. Ask for forgiveness. Hosea 14.2 says, say to him, okay, those are words, say to him, forgive all our iniquity. See, the first step towards restoration is acknowledgement of sin. And with your words, right, with your words, you acknowledge your sinful ways and you ask him for forgiveness. Have you ever been in a fight with a, uh, with a friend or a coworker or a spouse and it was actually resolved without using words? Like, have you ever found yourself in a situation where the silent treatment actually worked? No. <laughs> no, the silent treatment just makes things worse or weird, right? You just pass your wife in the hallway like gunslingers and you won't talk to you. Like, it's weird. And so the silent treatment isn't, isn't the way to go about it. Restoration happens through words. Saying the words, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And in this passage, God is telling us to do the same. Use your words. Acknowledge your sin, and it promises that he will forgive you. Look at Hosea 14, 4. It says, I will, I will, that's God, heal their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will have turned from him. You see that? God promises when you acknowledge your sin, he promises to forgive you. And so like we sin, we mess up, we understand that. But then we find that God doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. He doesn't forget about us. Instead, he forgives us. And when you understand that, that leads us into the second part of the words of repentance, it leads us to repay him with worship, is what it says. Number two, repay him with worship. So again, look at verse two. So God forgives us, and then it says, so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. That word repay is kind of weird, right? I guess kind of, it's like, what's that, what's that doing there? How do we repay God? He has everything. Everything is his. I mean, Psalm 50, verse 10, God says that every animal of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is God's. Psalm 24, 1, uh, it says, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to God. And so the question is like, how do we repay somebody who already owns it all? 
you know? Christmas is coming up uh, soon. Do you have anybody on your shopping list that is like terrible to buy for because they already have one of everything? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, or maybe they're the kind of person, I've, I've been accused of this, where if you don't have it and you want it, you just go buy it and you won't let anybody else get it for you, right? So how do you repay somebody who already has everything? And that's kind of the idea. That's God. God already has everything. So how do we repay him? Well, the word repay here is better understood as respond. Respond. Because you did this, I will do this. I will repay you in this way. So it's how we respond to God and what he's done. And so the point here is this. Worship is a response. Worship is a response. When you understand forgiveness, the natural response is worship. When you understand all that he's done for you, the natural response is worship. When you understand that God made us, that he redeems us, that he protects us, that he provides for us, the natural response is worship. And this says it's a response from our lips or with our words. Now we understand when we talk about worship, like worship is bigger than just like the songs that we sing. It's bigger than, it's, it's, yes, we call this corporate worship, but like worship is a lifestyle. It's bigger than that. It's, it's responding to the Lord in all kinds of ways, how you live, how you interact with others, how you are generous with the things that you've been given, your resources and your talents. Like that is what worship is about. But this is specifically talking about worship from our lips. Worship from our lips, like with our words. And so I want us to direct our mind to one of the primary ways that we worship him with our lips, and that is through corporate worship. It is through singing, what we just did. And there's an element of it, of, of it coming from our lips that sure, worship is intended for God to hear us, right? We want him to hear us. Worship is ultimately about him and giving him all glory and adoration and praise because he's the only one that deserves it. But I also think that there's something powerful about worship coming from our lips and you hearing yourself say it, right? You hearing those words yourself, you hearing yourself respond to his goodness, to his faithfulness, to his forgiveness that he has extended to you. And so if worship is a response to what he's done, well, that means that worship's not about you. Worship's not about you. It's not about your personal preferences, you know? Sometimes we, we make, especially corporate worship, for whatever reason, like about our personal preferences. Well, I like this style over that style. I like these kind of songs over those kind of songs. I prefer that kind of instrument over that kind of instrument. And we make it about our personal preferences. But worship is not about us, right? What I would say is if the words are true, sing them. And sing them loud. You need to hear yourself singing truth, Right? And I would say too, like if you have an issue worshiping to one style or better to another, like there may be something going on there in your, in your heart. Worship is not about you. It's not about your personal preferences. Also, worship is not about, about your feelings. Do you know that? Worship is not about your feelings. It doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. Sing, worship it, respond to his goodness. Worship is a response it's not a feeling. In fact, Eugene Peterson says that we live in an age of sensation. Somewhere along the way, the idea of worship was confused with our feelings and our emotions, right? But the problem with that is this. Some days you're grumpy. Some days you're tired. Some days you've had a bad week. Some days you just don't feel like it, right? 
And what then? Is God not still worthy of worship in those moments? Of course he is. So it's not about our feelings. Eugene Peterson says this, worship is a response that develops feelings for God. So we respond to him and then that develops feelings for God. Worship is not a feeling for God that is expressed through worship. And it's out of a heart of gratitude that our mouths praise him. First Chronicles chapter 16, I want you just to notice all of the, the phrases and words here that have to do with praise coming from your mouth, okay? It says, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, proclaim his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell about all of his wondrous works, boast in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. It comes from your mouth. Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, which means it is the fruit of lips that confess his name. It comes from your mouth. It comes from your lips. Worship is a response. And as we respond, worship then reorients our eyes on him. And it leads us to the third phrase in the words of repentance here. Number three, we declare dependence on him. We declare dependence. Verse three says, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands for the fatherless receives compassion in you. That's kind of a weird verse, right? Anybody have Hosea 14.3 on like a coffee cup or something like that, talking about riding horses and stuff? Probably not. So what's it talking about? Israel had two main failings as a people. Remember, the idea of Hosea is they are an unfaithful people. God is the faithful groom. So their faith, unfaithfulness was uh, seen in two major ways. Basically, they were trusting foreign armies Right? That's what the whole Assyria and riding horses talks about. They were, they were trusting foreign armies and kings instead of God. And they were worshiping man-made idols instead of God. They were worshiping things that they created. They were worshiping little fake gods that they made. And Hosea 14.8 talks about those fake gods being something that can never answer them and never watch over them. And that's true with little fake gods that we create in our life, little idols that we may create. Those things ultimately can't answer you and they can't protect you. They're worthless. They're just a thing sitting on a shelf, right? And here, those were their two main failings. Simply put, they were placing their trust in other things besides the one true God and they were placing their worship on other things except for the one true God. And the book of Hosea says that that is adultery. The book of Hosea says that that is cheating on God. Again, Hosea eleven seven. my people are bent on turning from me. They're just bent on turning away. And that's true for us, man. We're just bent on, on turning, on placing our trust and our worship on, on all kinds of other things except for the one true God. If we're not careful, we will begin to place trust in other things and we will begin to worship anything and everything other than God. So what does that look like for us? I don't know, examine your own life and and what are those things in your life that you're placing trust in and you're placing your worship on? It can be trusting in, in your money, 
could be trusting in your status, trusting in your abilities, trusting in your job, trusting in just the idea of religion. It could be placing your worship on all kinds of stuff, good stuff, but stuff that you like, your hobbies, your kids, your family, anything that takes the place of God. If you wanna find the idols in your life, just look at where you're spending your time and what you're spending your money on, and you'll find them. You'll find those things that you are placing above the Lord. Now, on their own, a lot of those things aren't bad things, but they can never compete with your affections for God. He calls that adultery. He calls that cheating. And so we're in this battle every single day, every single one of us. We need to ask ourselves, will I cling to myself or will I cling to my Savior? Will I recognize Christ as most reliable or will I prefer my own abilities? Will I place my trust and my worship in all kinds of other things or will I set my eyes on the one true God who loves me and laid down everything for me? If I'm not actively and daily declaring dependence upon God, I am by default clinging to my own personal strength. And so, again, the idea of this morning is that words are powerful. Words are powerful. You need to hear yourself declare dependence upon God because your heart is bent on turning to everything other than him. And so daily, a daily posture of repentance, declaring your dependence upon him, right? So through the words of repentance here, we acknowledge sin, we hear ourselves respond to him in worship, and then we see how ridiculous it is to turn to anything other than him, and we declare our dependence only on him, and we do that daily. We do it daily. And when we do that, when we respond, when we turn toward God, he promises to revive us. He does. He promises to revive us. Throughout this book, it's God that is doing the restoring on every page. It's God doing the restoring. Remember what I said week one, talking about the picture of Hosea and Gomer, the faithful groom and the unfaithful bride. We talked about how that is a picture of God's love for his unfaithful people, right? And so who is Hosea? Hosea is Jesus. Who is Gomer? That's me and you. We are the unfaithful bride. I want us to read uh, Hosea chapter three again. It's only five verses as we close this morning. But I want you to see the faithfulness of our God. Hosea 3, one. Then the Lord said to me, go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. If you remember in chapter one, Gomer, the, the unfaithful wife, God says, I want you to marry a prostitute, Hosea. And so he goes and he marries Gomer. She cheats on him multiple times. Two of their kids aren't even Hosea's. She cheats on him and then in one night she just gets up and leaves. And she leaves Hosea as a single dad, right? And then in chapter three, God says, I want you to go again and I want you to find your wife and marry her again, right? Find the woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And then it says, that's a picture, God says at the end of verse one of chapter three, just as the Lord loves the Israelites though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. They were turning to other gods. 
And God says, go again. Go again and love them. Verse two. So I, Hosea, bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. And I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man. And I will act the same way towards you. Here, the faithful groom, he goes, he finds his adulterous wife and he buys her back. He buys back what was already rightfully his. It's a picture of Christ coming to this earth and buying us at the cross, right? And so he comes and he buys back his unfaithful wife and then he renews his vows with her. He says, Gomer, you be faithful to me and I will be faithful to you. Hosea has never been unfaithful, but he declares his faithfulness to his unfaithful bride just as God declares his faithfulness to you and me. We are unfaithful but he is always faithful to us. And as a result, this is a picture of God and us. Verse four, for the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. The people will turn back to him. And when they do, they will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Who is Hosea? That's Jesus. Who is Gomer? That's me and you. He is the faithful one who restores and redeems his unfaithful people. And you and I can be right with him. We can know him. He loves you. He laid down everything so that you can know him. And you can turn to him today. And as Christians, this daily posture of words of repentance protects us from the dangerous prosperity gospel nonsense that tells us if I just do X, Y, and Z, then I'll earn his favor and nothing bad will happen to me. That's craziness, right? So through a posture of Repentance, acknowledging sin, responding in worship, and declaring our dependence on him, then restoration comes through that repentance. Restoration comes through turning to Jesus. And when you do that, he says he will do this. Here's the promise. Look at the end of chapter 14, verse four. We're almost done, I promise. Verse four. I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them. For my anger will have turned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread and his splendor will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. This is a bunch of imagery. It's a bunch of picture that's going on here. But basically, the book of Hosea closes with a picture of God restoring those who turn to him, bringing new life to those who turn to him. The dew of God falls on dry, cracked ground, and life springs up. Life springs up. And in this moment, the people of God, when they repent, when they turn to God, they are healed, they are loved, and it says they will flourish. And when we return to him, we do what Hosea chapter three, verse five says, we come to him in all of his goodness. And so don't, don't miss it this morning. Yes, 
the words of repentance are powerful, but the power isn't in the words. The words are just a guide. The power is in our God who is relentless for his love for us. He's relentless in how he loves us. So let's turn toward him daily. Let's turn towards him daily through these words of repentance and let's trust him to revive and restore. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.